A todos, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to the Long Game Podcast. This episode is a part of our Kitchen Side series, where we, the co-founders of Omniscient Digital, pull back the curtain and show you the behind-the-scenes conversations, the debates, strategies, and brainstorming sessions that we have at our agency. The meat of this conversation was contrarian ideas. So we start off the conversation debating a hot take from Ben Pines on LinkedIn that stated that content marketers are not actually storytellers. So we found some grains of truth in this. We debated what storytelling actually means. We talked about when storytelling applies and when it doesn't apply and how this model should look in our ideal world of content. We also covered what SEOs should be focused on right now. Where's the signal? Where's the noise? Where are people wasting their time and where should they be spending more time and attention? Finally, we covered hard truths in SaaS. SaaS hard truths. So things that are not great to hear, but it's the way the world works. So without further ado, here is this Kitchen Side episode of the Long Game Podcast. Let's get into it. I just don't. To automatically record. Yeah. That's what I always do on my interviews um, because I I feel like the countdown timer really makes you aware that you're on camera. And it's like, how do I start? It's like you go out on stage and the lights are shining in your eyes. You're a deer in the headlights and you're like, be entertaining. Go. Say something funny. It's It's like it all of a sudden introduces a cold start when you had already started in a Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So anyway. We're going to talk about uh, LinkedIn teardowns. Ali, I think you maybe framed it that way. Um, lots of people post lots of things on LinkedIn. Some of it's good. Most of it's bad. I feel like, uh, uh, have you ever seen that uh, Billy Madison? You, you've seen Billy Madison, right? It's been a while. There's that thing at the end where he, um, he, he the they're talking about. Sadler <laughs> goes back to school or something. Yes, yes. And they do the academic decathlon. And in one of the sections, he's supposed to speak to a question around like the industrial revolution and its effects on like the Midwestern economy or something like that. And he tells the story about this like puppy dog that he learned in third grade. And the the moderator goes, um, everybody in this room is now dumber for having listened to what you just said. <laughs> Not only do I award you no points, but may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> Is that how you feel when you're on LinkedIn sometimes? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, I think I've actually le- I've learned I've I've actually I'm I'm a worse marketer for having mm-hmm. read LinkedIn posts. <laughs> yeah. Um so anyway, but there is some good stuff and I think we're going to talk about that today. Let's start with the first, the most contrarian, the <laughs> I got another meme in my mind. Uh have you seen that uh, Gordon Ramsay one where he's like, "Delicious. Finally some good fucking food." When I saw this one, I was like, delicious. Finally, a good fucking hot take. Like, a real hot take. Um, Ben Pines. Ben Pines, uh, director of content Uh, at, um, is it AI21 Labs? AI21. Had him on a pod a couple months ago. Had him on the pod. Word Tune. Great product. He's had some good hot takes. This one goes, marketer, you are not a freaking storyteller. SaaS content is not the same as journalism. We are not telling stories. That is not the main thing. We are targeting people who search for an innovative perspective that can help improve an aspect of their work. One, they want to succeed in their work. Two, they're looking for experts who have experienced a similar situation. Three, they want to learn from your experience, try it out for themselves. 
If there is no problem solution in the article, they won't read your blog. Thoughts? I just, I feel like innovative perspective and learn from your experience. Like those could be stories, but to just tell stories as a SAS blog, I don't think that works. I think that goes into the whole media company thing where like, sure, you can have a whole series of telling stories. I think if I think of examples, first round review comes to mind. They tell some great stories in their articles, but it's also filled with tons of actionable stuff from their firsthand experience. It's not just telling a story. Yeah. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe we're talking about format or something, but I'm looking at the comments here and people are kind of putting them on blast around like, storytelling is everything. And I think they're missing a point that, yes, it's important, but it's not the end goal in itself. Like the end goal is the business, like growing the business. And by yeah. do, you do that by helping people do their work better. L-E-C-B-2-B. You know, Jay Akunzo on one of the fireside chats that I did with him had a really good point on this. Because I was noting, I read his book, uh, uh, Break the Wheel, and he's, he's a very good storyteller. And I remember one of the insights that he framed, I think he introed the book with this, was around this coffee brand. What was the coffee brand's name? Death Wish. Death, Death Wish Coffee. And... Um, the point was they basically took the exact opposite approach to what all the other coffee makers did, which I don't know the exact bean names. It's like Arabica and Robusta or something Robusta, like that. Yeah. yeah. And like Robusta is like the really, it Less. doesn't taste good. It's very Robusta. It doesn't taste yeah. good. It's like higher caffeine, et cetera. Like nobody was using those. They were throwing those out. And this brand realized that their myth. market was like truck drivers and people who just wanted high caffeine dark, bitter, terrible coffee, and they just wanted the, uh, the strength of it. So it was basically saying, like, best practices are not always best. And his, I guess the takeaway from that for me was that story, story wraps around a kernel of truth or a point that you want to make, but if you, if you don't have that point you want to make or the kernel of truth, the story is not, you know, it could be entertaining, I guess. Like, you could just enjoy hearing a story, but I think the mm -hmm. story facilitates the message or what you actually want to transmit. And in that sense, I think storytelling is and can be important. A lot of the books that you read, business books, it's a fairly simple point. Robert Greene is very famous for this with the 48 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies of War. He'll basically give you lessons uh, about power and, and war and strategy and all of these things, but he'll, he'll take stories from, you know, the 1500s or like he'll, he'll mine through history. And it's so you remember it better. And it can definitely help points stick, but um, I'm kind of rambling at this point. <laughs> I do think the word story and storytelling in marketing and especially content marketing, I don't know exactly what people mean when they say it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's just another one of those phrases that people are just saying. Marketing is storytelling. Like when I, want, when I think about stories, I think about reading The Atlantic. Like I just want to read this thing and read the story about how some person turn their dead parent into an AI and like spoke to them. But I don't want to read a story like that on a SaaS blog. Like I'm trying to do, do my job better. Yeah. Yeah. Or like the recipe websites, everybody complains about the fact that they start with 600 to 800 words of the <laughs> story to of recipe. how their <laughs> grandparents used to make this and they used to love it in the summertime, but they hated 
the mustard in it. So they took the mustard out and <laughs> it's like, just give me the damn recipe. Mm-hmm. I do. I agree with what you said, Alex, about how it's just one way of delivering information and maybe it's a bit stickier. Um, that's what some of the commentary below his post is saying is like, well, story is story is simply a framework. Like you can still deliver the problem solution, uh, piece of content just through that method. Um, I will say, I think that this is a symptom of so many journalists and creative writers entering the field is there's a disconnect with like what they used to do and what they used to do was really fun and very creative. Uh, but like David, you said, there's a whole, it's a whole different world in a way. Like it's, there's a whole different purpose to that content. Um, I will say like customer and success stories, those usually read well in story format. I think that they resonate more and they help the reader connect to both the customer and then like the tool that they, like if it's a hero's journey, like they use this tool and, Oh, you can have this tool too. Uh, but as, as for a SAS blog, I think it's gotten a little bit out of hand in terms of the storytelling aspect. There's only so many stories you can tell about a SaaS tool. So we're on Ben's side here. Ben, if you're listening, we support you. (laughs) I think for the most part, like I do think that storytelling is effective if you want to make a point stick. I just think that leading with the story is probably the wrong focus. Mm -hmm. And especially, I think like what we talked about with the recipes, it's kind of what it's really understanding the intent of the content, right? Like, do you need to tell a story in a Facebook ad if it's like a retargeting ad? Probably not. Like, you probably just need to point them back to your website or say, hey, you forgot this in your shopping cart. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if you're telling a story about, or sorry, if you're making the point, the contrarian point that, you know, artificial intelligence is actually going to save the world, it might help to wrap that up in a couple historical anecdotes that show, mm-hmm. oh, this has happened before. Like people become fearful and there's like the Luddites and then there's the, I, I can't remember the words that Mark, I'm using Mark Andreessen's um, uh, essay, but he, he, he pulled from history and was like, you know, in, in these situations, this same thing happened. Therefore we're seeing this play out again. So it kind of like, it made it stick a little bit more. Yeah. Or as a way of like relating to your audience. Like I wrote a bunch of long form pieces at HubSpot where I would either intro with a personal anecdote or weave like a story throughout as a way of being like, I know what you're dealing with. Like I've been there or like we've been there. And like now that we've we're on common ground, like here's the solution I'm providing or here's how I'm answering that question that you originally Googled. Um, but that I wouldn't make the whole piece a story. Like that's not why they're reading it is to like close the loop on my personal experience. Like they're just looking to feel related to, and then they're like, okay, now define this for me or give me the best practice for this. I really like, I don't know if you, maybe that's like a micro story. I really like it like midway through the article when somebody injects their themselves into the story or like somebody they know or, or some like, Hey, like here's. Like we're, we're pulling a little aside. It's like almost a parenthetical. Um, you're telling somebody how to set up Facebook ads or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you, you pull this aside where you're like, yeah, the first time I tried to do this, like I made this mistake and it almost got me fired and blah, blah, blah. And then you go right back in. Like I, I actually do really enjoy those. Yeah, yeah that's an saying. anecdote then, not a story. Yeah. What is a story? Oh. What? <laughs> <laughs> a story for most marketers is just like a long introduction where you um, uh, speak in prose. That's that's how I've seen most people kind of invoke that. Like just once bro, upon a time, bro, blah blah blah. blah. A story. <laughs> have you written? Sa- written? Have you written sass poetry? <laughs> is that a new thing? ChatGPT can do it. Please no. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, any other thoughts oh, on storytelling? No, but these no. people are Solid heated. Solid take from Ben. I, when, I think when a hot take like that gets people writing paragraphs in response, like, it's really interesting to pay attention. And for people who are on the storytelling side, like, maybe it's something worth revisiting, like, that belief and what you actually mean when you say marketing is storytelling. Because... When I hear that, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Like, I mean, it doesn't it make sense like, in so many scenarios. Like programmatic it SEO, like, it doesn't. You don't it need a story. Nice. Like, it's a nice little kitschy thing to say, but I'm just like, yeah. what does it actually mean? I actually think that most of these hot takes, and I know we'll go through some more here in a little bit. It, I think it's not. They're not black and white. It's just one way of thinking about all of these like nicknames and acronyms and things that we talk about like in passing but then once you unpack the comments you're like oh yeah I didn't think about it that way or like this is how I define it and these people are coming from this angle um so it's I would never take any of this stuff at face value I do think that there is a large swath of information and advice given online that has a moral tone and I've talked about this before with kind of the media company and creative brand types Mm -hmm. of things it's like be human like you know don't write for the algorithm write for the humans and it's like yeah, of course, because the human's going to read that, but also like the human's not going to find that if you don't actually optimize for the algorithm. So you got to do both, and that's totally fine. Like, but it sounds really, it sounds benevolent to say be more human, right? It sounds benevolent to say be more creative. It, it sounds awesome to say like you got to be a storyteller because humans are storytellers, and um, you see this in in all other kind of spaces, not just content marketing, but like. In, in conversion optimization, you know, there was always this chorus of, like, do the research, know the customer, talk to the customer. <laughs> and, like, I always find myself just, like, passing by. It's like, yeah, <laughs> of course. Like, <laughs> you sound wonderful for saying this, but I don't think it's actually helping anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think from <laughs> my experience, not. people aren't even doing it. They're saying it, but I don't think everyone's actually doing it. And people <laughs> will, will agree that you should do it. But it takes a lot of time to set up time with customers and all that stuff. I'm like, and from my experience, people are not. They're just. I'm like, where did you come up with this idea? And it was like, oh, I saw this other company do it, so I wanted to test it out. I'm like, so you don't. This was not validated by anything besides <laughs> seeing a competitor do it. Yeah. The, anyway, the dumb little chip on my shoulder is always like wanting to take the opposite side because you, you, you can always find a case for it. It's like when people are like, yeah. don't copy your competitors. I'm like, I've done it once or twice and it worked. <laughs> not every time you don't want to copy the entire business strategy or yeah. their entire SEO strategy. But like, I remember when I was doing a CRO consulting engagement, uh, way back in the day for a candle website and I did all the customer research, conversion research and did all these well-researched tests and they, they were all flat. And then I just looked at another e-commerce site that had this really cool Instagram widget. It was like UGC content and you know, it works really well for candle brands cause it's very aesthetic. And I was like, Oh, let's just copy that. And it worked. And I was like, oh, man, like zero customer research went into this. And it actually was really successful. Someone's listening to this and they're going to take it at face value and be like, let me just go copy my competitors because that's what Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> um, OK, so let's move on to the next one. Uh, Casey Hill had a post that's uh, all about hard SaaS truths, which I really like these. Uh, we did one pep. Peplaya had like hard leadership truths, and I think that was a really cool segment that we did. So we'll go through these one by one, maybe. Yes. Let's do it. Some managers are just bad, but the good ones are often about fit. Certain folks thrive under a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk. Others would be gone in a month. 
Good leadership is about building a team that is symbiotic with your management. Yeah. I think we've experienced that firsthand. That's very true. <laughs> I think that's obvious. That's pretty um, straightforward. A lot of teams are massaging the numbers. We have 10,000 customers. Might mean that they have that many free and paid users. They really only have 2,000 paid. We work with BMW. Might mean they work with a single BMW dealership. Our NPR, NRR, sorry, not NPR, is 110%. <laughs> if we just exclude that pesky small business cohort, which is 20% of all of our customers. Take public numbers with a grain of salt. I like yeah. this one. I like this one a lot. Case studies are often bullshit, right? Not ours. Except ours. Not ours. <laughs> uh, we very show charts. Of, very proud of our work. <laughs> we don't just increase traffic, you guys. We do much more. Well, there's a lot of bullshit online. Like, I don't think this is like, um, you know, you, you always have to like think, all right, this person is trying to make themselves appear strong and successful, et cetera, because that generates social proof, that generates trust. Taken to the extremes, I saw John Henry just called out this SEO tool because he literally found that all of their testimonials on the site were just fake. Like they were just oh, like he, he reverse searched the images of the people and it was like these generic stock photos and was Whoa. like, all right, this is this is not good, right? Massaging the numbers. I think we've all seen that. Yeah, hundred percent. Oh yeah. Um, I I mean I might have kind of done it myself a little bit <laughs> internal pitch decks making a case for things kind of fudging the numbers rounding up a little bit yeah little white lies i'll admit to that tell us more do you have any specifics <laughs> uh yeah it, it'll be like if i'm running if i'm trying to make a case for something that i strongly believe in and i wanted to reduce skepticism i might emit exclude some data points that are like it's important to know but it would distract from the big picture mm -hmm. it's kind of like we've talked about how if we put certain things in front of clients that aren't even the key thing for them to care about yeah. it ends up being 30 minutes talking about something that doesn't actually matter it's similar where like i'm not like making up fake numbers but i'm excluding things that are just going to be distractions that don't actually make sense which might be different from what we're talking about here I think what we're talking about here is people might be really embellishing their numbers or their results that they can drive without having any proof, without having any responsibility or accountability to prove it. And that's I think that's story. probably one of those truisms, just generally speaking, like people generally on their resume are going to take more credit for the numbers that they had a role in moving. Um, but it obviously wasn't like just due causally to themselves entirely. Um, mm -hmm. The same is true for companies and case studies. You see that with agencies where it's like, oh, we drove this growth and it helped the company get acquired. And it's like, <laughs> there's a lot of there, no. there was there were a few <laughs> other factors going on in that acquisition than than your PPC campaigns. <laughs> um, so I don't know. And I also think the flip side is that. Internally, actually, I've seen a lot of companies who do have really impressive numbers who aren't updating them and are actually underrating what they're doing. I see a lot of candidates who come into our job roles who don't even give points of proof. So I, I think the opposite is also true. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, like, folks that are in transition right now, like, I've, we've, I've talked to some candidates who, who didn't bother to, like, make note of their impact before they were let go, before they transitioned out, and obviously you don't have access to that data after you leave. So 
it's definitely really important is to make note of all that stuff because that's what we pay attention to mm-hmm. it's the numbers yeah it's almost like it it's the first thing you notice and then your second order questioning is around like the details on the number but like, like the number how? does attract your attention mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah just be ready to back it up all right, so every founder thinks their team is filled with A players. In actuality, A players are very rare and often heavily fought over. If you have a true A or A-plus player, they are changing the tra- trajectory of your business in 12 months or less. But you can have a good team with efficient B players that are worth far more than what they are paid. Efficient B players. How would you guys define A player? I think it's kind of like the 10x engineer concept. Um, there's probably a bell curve, like a normal distribution of employees where most people are C's. Um, some sec- section is D and B. Uh, that's a little bit smaller than the C players. And then A and F players are exceedingly rare, probably. And F players are probably more rare than A players. Or sorry, the opposite. A players are probably more rare than F players. But I think it's probably like the top 1% to 5% of people are probably A players. And a lot goes into the fit, too. It's like, I don't think you're just, like, generically across the board. Like, you would be talented at every company. So there's sort of, like, employee company fit. Like, I feel like I've been an A player at points in my career, but not not at all points and not at all jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've been asking this question in our screening interviews of how would your past three managers rate your performance on a scale of 1 to 10? And... I had to answer that question for myself, like, because I'm like, if I'm posing this question, I want to be able to answer it. And I was like, I think I would give myself like a seven or, yeah, a solid seven at my last job, because I know I can be an A player, but due to other circumstances, like, I couldn't be that, like, that high caliber because of whatever things blocking me. But my other job, I'd be like, yeah, I'm a fucking nine, nine point five, because, mm-hmm. um, and when I think about A players, I'm thinking about people who are pitching new ideas, like asking for forgiveness, not permission, moving forward with things, proposing new and better ways to do things and taking initiative versus others who may be waiting for directions or like maybe that's just more of a confidence thing, but that's where I think B players who just haven't realized their own potential can be really important to building an amazing team because with some encouragement, those folks can become really dangerous and like, uh, really influential. I I don't think I don't I don't see a player as synonymous with like the perfect employee. Like I think for folks that are always pushing forward and always um, asking for forgiveness or just like taking initiative, I think some folks leave a bit of a mess in their wake, <laughs> or they don't do things like all the way. They just get it done, which is important, especially at the stage of the business that we're in and some of our clients. So I do think there's a role for the quote unquote B player who's like on the the execution side, on the front lines, maybe they take what the A player has created and they iterate and they turn it into like a fine tuned process. Like I do think there's a large bit of room for for B players. Like I I like how he said efficient B players, because I think that's Mm. important no matter what your score is or grade is. but yeah, I definitely agree with this, and I think it's important to notice fit, too. There's different strategies on this, too. There's a famous book about Netflix culture, uh, No Rules Rules, I believe. 
And they famously had a lack of process or a constantly evolving process so that there wouldn't be a safety net for lower than A players to operate within. They fired very quickly if people couldn't cut it. And that basically was select self-selecting for like the top performers, the drivers, et cetera. I think if you did that at the vast majority of companies, you would probably go out of business pretty quickly. So I think the majority of businesses need to set up infrastructure, processes, and systems that allow people who are not like A plus players to do really well and to grow into into their uh, excellence. So I mean, yeah, you, you could do it either way. But how to know if you're an A player? I think it's like you can kind of feel it. And then I think also if your colleagues are saying things like, oh, they're a machine or what was the Sam Parr had a, a thing in, in the My First Million podcast. He's like, oh, they're an animal. You know, mm-hmm. if people are saying that stuff about you, you're probably an A player. I also think like look around you. <laughs> if you're like moving faster, getting more done than like your average team member, then you're definitely an A player. That's what uh, someone said about you, right, David? At HubSpot. Yeah, someone was like, yeah. If they're like, you know, David, you put so much pressure on yourself to do all this stuff. If you worked at like 50% velocity, you'd be faster than most people here still. Um, maybe a sign if you are indeed an A player is if you're like, what else is everyone doing here? <laughs> and you're like, why are they not producing as much or as like, I am? Or like, why are they burnt so. out? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, even the best SaaS companies go through a lot of employee turnovers that grow. It's critical here to have redundancy around key processes and focus on building systems. If the rockstar marketing whiz gets hit by a bus tomorrow, you want to have a team that can replicate the formula. I think that kind of goes to what we were just talking about, like building the systems, right? Yeah. I, that, I just wrote about that, by the way, in the newsletter that came out today around singles and doubles philosophy. Mm-hmm. It was based on this Jeffrey Katzenberg memo uh, that he wrote while he was at Disney. Um, I can't remember the other guy, one of those huge uh, Hollywood figures. But he basically wrote this memo, like, shit-talking uh, that guy. Oh, I really wish I had his name. It's one, you know, one of those, um, like, it wasn't David Geffen, but it was another one of those. Um, but yeah, they basically had this huge uh, box office. Like they spent so much money on this movie, Dick Tracy, uh, star-studded cast, super expensive special effects, blah 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 blah, and it barely broke even on the box office. So he made the argument to go back to basics and get base hits consistently. And to do that, it requires a lack of focus or, or less focus on individual talent or like that one-off campaign, that one-off person, and more on a system that can repeatedly do good output, good work. And I really like that. Yeah, I agree with this one. I mean, we're, we're not a SaaS company, but we're seeing turnover as we grow. I don't think it's necessarily I mean, a bad thing. Yeah, and superstars are going to move on. Like, in mm-hmm. la- yeah, I, I think in the vast majority of cases, if somebody is truly a standout, like there is the risk that they're going to leave, and you got to have an answer for what you're going to do in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm going to skip are the next one. These, yeah. Are there any that like stand out to us? I like many teams are made up of folks who are more afraid of failing than they are excited about succeeding. <laughs> oh God. Me? This is nearly always <laughs> a life. leadership and culture issue. You need to hire people you trust to make decisions. If you don't trust them, let them go. Uh, I'm equal. I'm just as much I'm afraid equal. of failing as I am excited to succeed. And most days when I wake up, I have to choose to focus on the latter because that's how you get shit done. 
But I don't think yeah. there's anything wrong with being afraid of failing. Like, that can also be I a really, fire. I really empathize with that because there was a point in my life when I indexed much more heavily under fear of failure. Like, I would overanalyze my decision, like, the smallest decisions and think about all the different scenarios and, like, I would get anxiety about, like, oh, what if this doesn't work? But I kind of built the muscle of let's just fucking start doing it and figure it out as we go. Like, expect that it won't work out and because you expect that, you're ready to, like, iterate as you go with the understanding that it's unlikely to be a fatal failure. I think that helped calm myself significantly where I'm just like, we're gonna succeed. It's not gonna be a straightforward path, but we're gonna get there. And I get excited about the process of getting there. Yeah, I talked to Austin about this once when I was like really struggling. This was like almost a year ago. And he was like, there's really no way you can fail if you just keep going. Like you're yep. gonna figure, and I, and the thing is, is, like everybody's like every teacher had that poster on their wall, right? In your class, like it's all over the place. It just doesn't really like hit until you're in the middle of it, and then you have to choose to like keep pushing because, like I, I, we've I've fucked up a ton over the past year, and I've learned way more through those experiences than I have the times that things did work out. Because what happened is they worked out, and then you go on to the next thing, and you don't really reflect on it. But when you mess up, you're forced to stop and be like whoa, okay, let's do this differently. And then it, and then you succeed. It's a, it's like, what do you want in life too? Because I think this, this fear of failure too prevents people from like getting into the arena. But what actually happens is it's this long, slow, um, uh, insidious failure that happens yeah. as a, res- a result of not actually taking the risks. You know, you sit by and you never talk to the person who you're attracted to. You never take the risk and like actually do the business that you want to build. You have all of these wishes, these desires, these things that you want to accomplish, but you sit on the sidelines as a spectator. Um, you let life go by as a passenger, and I think you wake up eventually and you're like, fuck, that was a failure. It just wasn't the, the sharp, spiky failure that hurts in the moment. It was this long, slow-burning thing that degrades your soul over time. Well, taking those risks, like usually people get scared to do them because they're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's the point. Like, What you think is going to happen is probably not going to happen. But if you go through with it, what does happen is likely better than you ever thought it could be, yeah. or you iterate from there and you're like, whoa, like had I not done that, I would not have reached this point and this point. I think also unpacking what risk means, like risk is probability. It's mm-hmm. not like a just nebulous, this might go wrong. It's also looking at what is the probability this goes wrong and what's the extent to that of that failure. Magnitude and too, yeah, probability, exactly, like magnitude. The, what's the magnitude? And it might be a very low probability of failing. And even if it did fail, it's not, again, it's not fatal. Like you're going to learn and move on. And I think because people don't unpack that, the idea of risk and the idea of failure uh, feels so nebulous that it paralyzes them. But once you start digging into like, well, what are all the things that could go wrong? And what's the probability and how bad is it? That helps you make it more tangible and be like, actually, that's not a horrible situation. And I think our job is to really coach our team and help them get over that barrier because there's sort of a threshold where, at, the, at least in my experience, there was a threshold of once I accepted that, I was able to go so much faster. But some folks don't hit that, like, I guess, activation energy to overcome that threshold and just start moving forward. I really don't like the, uh, this is kind of like slowing down in culture a little bit, but I really don't like the fail fast culture though. And like the embrace and uh, celebrate failure thing. I I actually, I really don't, that doesn't resonate with me. That was always a thing in the experimentation space was like, it was never the executives that said it, but it was always the um, (laughs) experimentation people who were like, 
uh, didn't win, but we learned. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't care. Learning doesn't pay the bills. So I think you, you don't want to aim for failure. And I think, David, risk uh, mitigation and actually figuring out, like, what's the downside of this if it does go wrong? Like, don't put all of your money in fucking crypto. Put 5% in, and you, you'll maximum lose 5% of your portfolio. But, like, you don't want to risk it all and, like, lose everything. That's a horrible way to interact. That's not courageous. That's stupid. Yeah. Well, so, if, if you do do that, understand what the risk is. The risk. Like, I know someone from HubSpot who took out his entire 401k and put it into Ethereum. He made a fuck ton of money, <laughs> but <laughs> whether it's like he was really smart or he got lucky, maybe both. He got lucky. Like, it's resulting. This is hella. a poker thing. This is, uh, yeah. you can't base the outcome like, and the input. Like, you know, the decision can be bad and you can still get a good outcome from it yes, and vice versa. He knew what he was getting. I think he knew what he was getting himself into and it paid off. But I imagine if you make that sort of decision, you know what you're you hopefully know what you're doing. With right. I mean, like, look, it's like if it's contained risk, like within a company, like we're not going to bet the portfolio. Like we're not going to bet the entire business on a single initiative. But like we put a couple retargeting ads, like we lose a couple thousand dollars. That's not a big deal. Yeah. You send an email that's like it doesn't get a response. Like send the email. Like <laughs> those yeah, little I'm things. Gonna, it's like don't be afraid of those things, you know. I'm going to extrapolate this out to more of like decision-making theory i don't play poker i don't fucking know how to read a hand but all this ultimately comes down to how well someone can make decisions and move like commit to a decision because i know some people might sort of have to make a decision and when it comes to the next chain of decision making they're still revisiting the previous decisions they made and Mm -hmm. that just makes it significantly more difficult to move forward in this case if you're overthinking the risk of failure and like that fear and you can't make a decision that's going to make everything moving forward significantly harder or like put you at a standstill. And so I would kind of bucket this under uh, decision making and like being able to be comfortable with like some of that ambiguity and risk. You don't play poker? No. <laughs> we should play next time. I think you would really enjoy it. <laughs> you would be very good I, at it. I probably would. You'd get so <laughs> into it. <laughs> It's, it's like, a perfect <laughs> metaphor for learning in life uh, because yeah. a lot of people say chess is a great metaphor for that, but actually poker is much better because yeah. it involves so much uh, luck and randomness. But there's also a ton of decision theory, yeah. statistics, math that can go into it, and psychology. And you so play with more yeah, that's people. Why sh- Very that's fun. Why chess is just that's 1v1. Why I should not do it. No, you would like it. <laughs> I, know, I, I like... know I would like it. Like, <laughs> I, I would get addicted to it and like try to. Ah, David's really in Vegas again. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get. Ga- I don't gamble either because oh, I don't really? know. I don't. I don't want to expose myself. Like I, I used to be a really big gamer. Alex knows this, and there was this one time I just like downloaded a, a game I used to play as a kid on my phone, and I was on a plane with Lisa for six hours. I didn't look away from my phone, and she was like, "You didn't look at me once during a whole flight." Whoa. I'm like, yeah, that's what happens when I get into something that I know I'm addicted to. Just like, cap it at like a twenty dollar buy in. Can't really yeah. do much harm with that. That's how we play. Yeah, and never play poker with Bernard in clear scope. He's oh, he, yeah. he'll 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 be friendly and maybe like lose the first couple and you're like, oh I'm not. Did you too ever bad. learn his tell? No, he's, a, he's a shark. <laughs> Did you ever learn his tell? No. No, he's good. He's very good. No tells. Um I had one more thing to say on failure. Oh yeah, that's it. Okay, cool. Um so I think another point I wanted to make is that a large percentage of business decisions are made. Um, to mitigate failure or the perception of failure, especially in the B2B context. So a lot of the times positioning, messaging is focused on like, oh, make this much money, save this much time. A lot of business decisions for B2B software 
is basically like, am I, is this going to make me look stupid? Is, is, is my boss going to yell at me if this goes poorly? You're key to not fucking up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is the reality of the world. And we can, we can rail against that. We can rant against that, but that is the way the world works. And even more so in uncertain economies. Um, you know, maybe there's a little bit more exuberance in good times, but that is the way the world works. I think from a management standpoint, you do want to, um, you know, even if you're not uh, encouraging failure, I think you want to encourage openness around failure and you want to show that as a leader, you fail too. Because I think one really big problem in most organizations, especially larger ones, is that the message doesn't, it doesn't come across, like you don't talk about the, the times you fail. So you enter this arena of success theater where everybody's afraid that their head is going to be on the line if, yeah. if they even say that they did something that didn't work. Um, so I think that may be what, what um, he was going for with this, too. Yeah. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> I didn't read this before. Did you not see that? <laughs> I thought you saw that. <laughs> yeah, I did. Be careful about a, quote, culture of failing. Everybody looks good in the boom times like 2021. When it gets tough, you have to keep a finger on KPIs and standards more than ever. If marketing is struggling to generate pipeline and sales is struggling to convert and the executives are struggling to hire and product is struggling to meet timelines, pretty soon folks can get comfortable in a culture of failing. Quote, it's not my fault we aren't growing. Look at, insert other departments here. Oh, we just said that. Fuck yeah. failure. Yeah. Like, I don't want failure. <laughs> no. no. I want I honesty around failure, but I don't want, I don't yeah. want to aim at failure. And I, don't, I certainly don't yeah. want to build a culture where it's like fine to fail all the time. Or just finger, like finger pointing. I think you give someone like five minutes to talk, like not really, but it's like a short period of time. Like we it's like owned, you failed. What did you learn about it? What are you going to do differently? Our, yeah. Earlier yeah. this year, we owned whatever we owned and we spent a little bit talking about it and we're like, cool, what are we going to do about it? And then we like iterated as we learned more. And so it was like, you definitely want to acknowledge it and be authentic, especially like from leadership, but that's, you can't stay there. Like where does, where do you go in that zone? You know, anything else on these? No, I think that's pretty solid. Um, Let's go next to the uh, SEO tips one. So this actually I really enjoyed because a lot of SEO LinkedIn and SEO Twitter is ridiculous and unhelpful and vapid. Um, so this is Daniel Foley Carter, um, SEO evangelist from 1999. Things oh. that an SEO, oh, a, an SEO you should be doing right now. Um, spending less time on ChatGPT uh, to do the work. Trust me, AI is incredible, yes, but it feels like there's just more emphasis on AI than there is on actually learning about what Google is moving towards. Ignore that. We, we, uh, yeah, that's, that's obvious. Uh, fully absorbing and learning about what helpful content is, what constitutes as helpful content. I'm just going to read like three or four because they're all kind of related. Yeah. How to measure helpful content. So as you and your team create content, <clears throat> you're able to measure impact and repeat, edit, evaluate, and repeat. I said repeat twice. <laughs> Learn about information prioritization. This, this goes hand in hand with helpful content and user experience. As helpful content algos evolve, it's key to understand that meeting a majority of your visitors' needs is more likely to result in higher rank. So I guess all of that's about helpful content. Um, I, I've been answering this question more frequently again recently. And on prospect or like sales calls and people are asking, people are still asking, are, how and are we using AI to produce content? And at this point, I feel like it's a trick question because my answer is 
pretty canned at this point. Like, we use generative AI tools to help us with the research and ramp up on industries that we're not familiar with. We use it for help with editing, but it doesn't have a, sign a significant role in the output. And the response mm -hmm. I've been getting is like, cool, same experience. Like, yeah. I'm a, I agree with that. It's like they're not expecting you to use it like to write a whole article anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you do say that, it's a, I imagine if you do say it's a significant part of your process, they'll be like, wait, hold up, what? I think that <laughs> was a like, big mistake that a lot of people made. And this is like, we talked about being an early adopter before and how I my hot take is that it's overrated in many cases. But I think a lot of people went really in on, um, on AI forward. And AI, to me, like was never the value proposition. It was always an operational efficiency booster. It was never like, like it, you don't say like in your question, it's like, who, who fucking cares? Like how we're using AI, if the content is good and helpful and works, like what, what would it mean to you if we were versus weren't, you know, does yeah. that change the results that you're getting? So I think a lot of people made the mistake of being like, oh, I'm an AI expert. I'm going in on AI. And it's like. Yeah, but what are you doing? Like, what <laughs> is what you're doing working? Like, it's it, I don't care that you're using AI to create it, honestly. Yeah. And we'll probably get into it later, but I've been using the idea of the double E, AT, and information gain a lot in my conversations. And like, by nature of how LLMs work, the content that these tools produce has no information gain. It just summarizes what's already available and therefore not adding any value. And so, like, again, we don't use it. Yeah. Like, for a significant part of the process. We only can get that through first-hand experience, which is through subject matter expert interviews. And I'd go down that route of how we're making the content valuable and all of that. So I think a couple months ago, I was having trouble speaking to those things, but it feels, there's a lot more clarity now. And I feel like if an SEO is still spending a little too much time on how much they're using AI, they're probably focused on the wrong things. Mm-hmm. I'm reading through a lot of these other things uh, on on Daniel's post, and I do think that he is actually right on all of this stuff. Um, a couple more include understanding end-user engagement, scroll behavior, click mapping, reports in GA4 to understand, basically UX signals, right? Uh, fully absorbing and learning about double eat. Um, he talks about information gain, uh, especially in, uh, uh, what is it, your money, your life content. My one thing with a lot of this stuff, and again, I do think that he's right with what you should be focusing on, but I know I think in memes, so forgive me again, but it's <laughs> it's like that midwit meme where uh, isn't this stuff just good content and haven't we been doing this for a long time? Uh, we have. <laughs> right. But like, I, I guess like this the royal we <laughs> No, us three. Wait, not our team. <laughs> Just us. <laughs> I think these algorithm changes matter. I think they do in the margins mostly. But almost in every case, changes to Google's algorithm just go back to, like, is the content good? Does it have good trust signals, backlinks? Like, can you demonstrate your expertise? Like, I, I, I don't feel like any of this is rocket science. I think it just comes down to how people have been educated and trained on, like, writing or producing for search. Because if the starting point is like, look at your competitors, look at Google, look at keywords, like all that stuff is super valid. It should not be step one. Like that's not how I produce strategy. Like I spend time watching a product demo, talking to the product team, talking to the sales team. If I can't get in front of the customers, I talk to customer success. Like, like tell me about the, all the common shit, the things that we know 
and then you use the tools and you use the environment through which people will be finding that content to then optimize. To me, like it's the same SEO sandwich thing I've talked about before. It's like the the bread pieces, like it's just the middle that you think about the optimization. You don't necessarily ideate through Google, in my opinion. Maybe it's like a second or a third order effect, but that's not how you produce helpful. I mean, how do you know what helpful content even means if you don't know what your like readers or your audience are wanting to read or what they're looking for or what your sales team needs to make money for your business? So it's, it's clear cut to me. I just, but I was educated differently and obviously I've learned a lot through the agency. I always so just think like from, I, I always go down to the first principles and it's like, why would someone read this? Like just fundamentally, why would they read this? And if I don't have a good answer for it, it's probably not good content. Yeah. Well, that's really, like, like, I don't even need information gain scores. Like I, I'm just like, why, why would somebody read this? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's and, like, what's funny. Ruthless. You said about like the human thing earlier, like to us, it's like, duh, but I truly believe a lot of writers and content teams forget who's reading there's like they yeah, i don't know how but they do they're so focused on like the clear scope score and the keyword ranking and the traffic number which are all important to me they're just like milestones toward the finish line those are not the finish line and that's what they're focused on they're not thinking about like a person reading it and the experience and like is this valuable would this lead to revenue but they treat those like they're two different things it, and, and, like, I know there is a little bit of misalignment in Google's incentives versus the reader's incentives, but it's marginal. It's, like, really, Google is trying to match those intent signals as well. And they mm-hmm. have an incredible amount of data, machine learning and AI, that detects the signals that says the user got what they wanted with this piece of content. So it's, like, the fact that those things were dichotomous to me never really meshed. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's not writing for the robot or the human. Like, the robot is trying yeah. to detect what the human wants to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you use, like, robot inputs to up your chances of getting discovered and being read. But that should not be how you ideate or how you produce, you know? Yeah, I think the more time I spend in the space and life in general, I just realize that <laughs> there's noise in everything. And I think we're just noticing a lot more noise in this industry and because we know like what's effective or like we have a strong opinion on how things should be done. Granted that this is also what everyone else is saying too, which makes it hard to know who to trust, but there's just so much noise and distraction from what actually is valuable. And people are trying to make things really complicated and fancy and create all these tools and use AI and all this stuff. But once you get to the meat of it and the foundational basics, that really haven't changed, like Alex said. <laughs> like, it makes it super clear what you need to do versus all these other things that people are going on about. It it's so challenging because it's such a boring, like, take on all this. But maybe because it's so boring, it's a hot take. I'm not sure. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think SEO as a concept is is hard at all. I, what I do think is hard is um, is scale. I, I think velocity is hard. I think editorial operations are hard. I think Mm -hmm. building in quality standards that a team of writers, both in-house freelance and AI can understand. I think that's hard. I think building links at scale, especially like if you're a small company and you're just starting out against higher level incumbents, that's hard. But I think the root level of what good SEO is, is really easy. 
Yeah. I agree. It's all, I and it's almost it's like all of the attention is focused on that instead of the hard stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was talking to Nadia, who was at Vengage and now at, ah, oh, crap, I forgot what her company's called. Well, I need to add that. Sunnyside? Sunnyside, yeah. And she's like, what are you seeing in the market? What's working? I'm like, honestly, it's less about what's working and more about people doing all these things that don't work because of all the noise. Um, yeah, it's tough. And I think the tough part of SEO is the human side where people are quick to believe all the things they see on LinkedIn and like they're kind of getting dumber because they take all of those as truths. And it's our job to come in and kind of undo some of that education quote education and help them focus on the right things and have more clarity on what they're trying to achieve that's that i think that's the hard part of seos like for in-house seos and consultants like you need to help educate people and keep them focused on a goal and hopefully you know what what they're trying to achieve and you know help them get there yeah it's like as fat mike from no effects once said it's our job to keep punk rock elite it's our job to keep seo basic <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap it. <laughs> All right. <laughs>